And today I want to look at sexuality almost from a complementary perspective, another direction. And this time I want to unpack for you a theology of sexuality, a vision. What is the Christian vision of sexuality? And it's my conviction that amidst something of the great culture war on this topic, the great confrontation between the Christian vision of sexuality and the cultural approach, which are radically different, I think many Christians feel confused and fearful. We're kind of holding on to orthodoxy, kind of hanging on, but without real conviction that this is good news. And I want us to regain a vision of the Christian vision of sexuality and understand and believe that it is actually good news. Not only for our own lives, but also that we might regain confidence to speak into a world that takes a radically different approach and to say, actually, I know the way to life. And it's through responding to the invitation of Christ and living under his authority. And that is the way that leads to life. So I want to give you the foundations, the theology of sexuality. And I want to look at two passages with you, one which speaks about marriage and one which speaks about singleness. And these two passages taken together will give us two paradoxical truths, two truths that almost sound like they contradict each other, and yet taken together, I think they give us something of the Christian vision for sexuality. The first idea that they present to us, and we found this in Genesis 2, we'll look at it in a moment, is sex is a powerful and good gift. The world thinks the church is anti-sex and prudish, but we say, no, we've got, actually got a higher view of sex, and so that's why we protect it in marriage. That's the first idea. The second idea we're going to see, and let's look at this in Matthew 19, sex is good, but it's really only a pointer to something greater, and that is union with Christ, which actually conversely means we can live without sex. Sex is good and a powerful gift, and yet it ultimately points to union with Christ, and that means we can live without sex. Those are, that's roughly the kind of idea that I want to open up with you as we look at these two passages. First of all, then, Genesis chapter 2. This is right at the beginning. And what you have is this literally Edenic scene of sexuality. So the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then that's verse 18, and then just jump down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, and this is a, a moment of real delight, he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here comes the instruction. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the paradigm picture 
of marriage and of sexual union that runs all the way through the Bible. It gets repeated a number of times. In fact, the second passage I want to look at repeats this passage. Jesus is having a dialogue about divorce, and he's being confronted about divorce, saying, like, kind of, basically, what are the circumstances by which I can divorce my wife? And Jesus restates the same passage that I just read to you and says, essentially, that the grounds for divorce are sexual immorality, but will lead to us for another day. But then the disciples are kind of, are kind of bulking at the same works. You can't really mean this kind of great, weighty vision of marriage as lifelong commitment to another. That feels too big, right? The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. If marriage is a permanent, lifelong commitment to another, it's better that we don't marry, because it's impossible. The vision you're presenting to us is impossible, they're saying. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't relax the demands. He says, but he said to them, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who've been been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men. So eunuchs, someone who uh, either was born without... uh, the kind of appropriate sexual organs or was made a eunuch, uh, like serving in the king's palace uh, and the king basically, you know, emasculates them. Effectively, they they lose their sexual organs um, because so that they're not a threat to his harem, right? So some would be made eunuchs. And there are eunuchs... This is, by the way, you'd be glad to know those first two, not, not, not the calling of those who follow Christ. <laughs> the third one, and there are eunuchs who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Those who've made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So as those who will live single and celibate lives for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now that's temporary or permanent. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, we'll come back to those, and I want to unpack those two visions, marriage or single celibacy. But for now, let's just understand why we need to look at this. Why do we need to have this theology of sexuality? Well, the first reason is fairly obvious, that we are living in a great clash between what I would call the hypersexual age, or rather a man called Jonathan Grant, called uh, the hypersexual age and the Christian faith. And how would we define hypersexuality? I think it's the conviction, first of all, that sexual desire cannot be repressed, that I must be able to express my sexual needs or my sexual desires. In modern parlance, man got needs, and that effectively, I need to fulfill those needs. There'll be a lot kind of consequence of that thought then is sexual activity is essential to my flourishing, And I cannot understand how anyone could choose to be single and celibate, could go without sexual activity. I go further and say part of this hypersexuality of our culture would also say my sexual desires are so significant that they are my identity. And that's why I think the modern kind of LGB phenomenon actually really is is, is actually a reflection of the fact that all of us, whatever our sexual desires, have, have elevated those desires to say actually this is the most significant thing about me such that I would, I would wear that label, and that label, whether it's gay or bi or whatever it is, that that label is, in a sense, a key defining part of who I am. That reflects the fact that everybody is raised sexual desire and the significance as part of who they are. And in, in view of that cultural assumption, the Christian ethic feels restrictive and feels repressive. The idea that 
sexual activity is to be confined only to marriage, marriage between a man and a woman, and effectively that's not your calling, that then you live in single celibacy, that feels restrictive, it feels repressive, it feels anti-human flourishing, it feels prudish, just kind of anti-sex, kind of just, just really death for some. They would hear it as death. I think that's particularly true in the area of same-sex relationships, that people think, how can Christians say that um, you can't have a same-sex sexual relationship? They say, isn't that, just, isn't that just homophobic? And in the face of that great culture clash, we as Christians then have lost our confidence. We kind of wouldn't know what to say when one of our friends said, Why, how can you repress yourself? How can you constrain your sexual, sexual desires? We might be able to say, well, this is what the Bible teaches, and that'd be wonderful if we did say that, but it, we, I think we can say more than that. I don't want to unpack what it's, what he, what, how we'd answer that question. I think some of us have started to believe some of the cultural approach on sexuality. You kind of think unfettered sexual freedom actually might bring the flourishing that it promises. And for some of us, the Christian sexual ethic, perhaps if you're single and you kind of say, look, I have these raging torrent of sexual desire within me, it just feels unlivable. It doesn't feel satisfying. It just feels one great sacrifice. And that's why I think I, I, I characterize it as we are hanging on to orthodoxy. I, I think I might have told some of you I hate roller coasters. And when I find myself on a roller coaster, I just kind of wish it's over. And if I ever find myself on it, it'll undoubtedly be because I, am, I love somebody who's asked me to go on a roller coaster, if that makes sense. And I want to you know, honor their desire in some way uh, to have fun with them. And, and during that experience, and I'm talking really fast roller coasters, not like easy. I, my three-year-old, four-year-old son, I'm happy to go with him on his ones, but not the, the big ones, the really aggressive ones. And when I go on one, I basically have to say to myself, just close your eyes, hold on, this is going to be over eventually, <laughs> and just kind of it'll wish it away. And I think that's sometimes how we approach sexuality. What I mean by that is we kind of just close our eyes I think I wish the culture war didn't exist, and I just kind of cl- hope that, it's, that I will get to heaven intact and just kind of ignore the great, um, the great warring desire within me or, or out, out in the culture. We're hanging on to orthodoxy, but we need a why. And I think what we've really forgotten is that Christ's ways lead to life. You know, John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that I have life and life to the full. Of course there's self-denial in the Christian life, but I am absolutely convinced that Christ's vision for sexuality leads to life. And there are thieves and robbers, other voices in our culture that would call people to lead lives, to embrace identities, and to kind of do even worse than that, mutilate their own bodies. And actually, we need to see the thieves and the robbers for what they are, and to see that Christ's ways lead to life whether we're in marriage or in singleness. I have a particular personal conviction on this subject because this is really, my story is something, experiencing something of this clash myself. So I come from a secular Jewish family uh, and I, from my kind of basically early teens, recognized that I only had attraction towards guys and that that was kind of who I was. Effectively, as kind of imagine without kind of any other influence in my life, I just kind of embraced that identity. So by the time I was 16, I'd come out to most of my friends, and it had become a significant part of my identity, and relationships, everything else followed from that. In my teenage years, I also found myself being drawn to Christ, and got hold of a gospel, and read, read the gospel, and, and, was, and was drawn to it. But I was also very aware that to follow Christ would have major implications for my sexuality, and for my cho- life choices. 
And to be honest, I wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. I remember very much, very clearly kind of wrestling with the idea, and I just said, no, I, I can't give up the prospect of being in a relationship in order to follow Christ. And so just like the rich young man, I kind of said, you know what, the sacrifice is too great, and I walked away effectively. And then I, I carried on a few years later, got to the middle of my time at university, my second year, and I really, up to that point in life, apart from sexuality, the thing that I was really pursuing was success. Because I thought, if I'm really successful, the world was a little bit more prejudiced in those days. And, and so I kind of experienced a bullying and that kind of stuff around sexuality. And so my kind of antidote to that problem was, if, I'm, if I can be really successful, then I'll be able to turn around to the people who are mean to me and say, ha, I'm better than you. And so uh, that's, that's my life goal. <laughs> um, and so I got, got to the point in my second year, and I was running my own business, and I was at university and kind of doing all the, kind of the, the vision of success that I thought would bring me happiness. And I just looked at my life and thought, this is no way delivering what it promised that success that I thought would bring me happiness isn't. And quite inexplicably, and I can really only just say it was a work of the Holy Spirit, that I, I, I then uh, chose to surrender my life to Christ. And I had a good friend who was a Christian, uh, was a medical student then, um, and a doctor now, and he, he just demonstrated the love of Christ to me so wonderfully. He challenged me as well, but essentially in my second year, I prayed with him to surrender my life to Christ. And at the time, I quickly recognized that to follow Christ would mean a surrender of every, every part of my life, including my sexual desires. And so uh, following him meant I made a choice to be single and celibate for the rest of my life. And um, what's interesting is I then felt this cult, the, the clash the other way, because then society had changed, and, uh, and now the people around me just couldn't understand how I could make that uh, decision. My housemates, were six lads at the time, all went out and got drunk and slept, and slept with people and did all that, looked at me and just said, how can you deprive yourself of sexual expression? And one of them thought I would commit suicide. They said, there's no way you can live a life without sex. You need to embrace this. And then um, a little while later, my brother and his girlfriend at the time uh, got me aside one Christmas and said, you need to embrace your sexuality. You need, like, they kind of inter an intervention, basically. Um, and I said, look, I think all people have sinned. Uh, all people... Uh, sex outside marriage is, is simple. And they said, what, so now we're sinners as well? And it, was, it, was, it didn't go so well. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so I experienced something of the clash. Basically, the people around me said, you, the, the, the call to follow Christ and to live a single celibate life is unlivable. And yet, as I came to follow Christ, and I lived single celibacy for a number of years, I experienced a deeper sense of uh, love, a deeper sense of family, I felt incredible sense of belonging. I was loved so well by the church. I'd always felt like an outsider with guys because of sexuality, kind of growing up gay. And, um, and suddenly, I was welcomed into the family, and I was one among many brothers, and it was incredible. And the love that I experienced, and most of all, I experienced the love of God, the sense of shame and guilt being kind of washed away in various ways. And, uh, and I said, right, well, now I'm a follower of Christ. That's the most important thing about me not my sexual desires. And so I stopped defining myself as gay and said I'm a child of God with same-sex attraction. And uh, it's reshaped kind of everything, how I related to men and women, and it was a longer journey. Um, and as part of that journey, I experienced something of a change in attractions. And that wasn't something I was aspiring towards or something I was kind of, right, I'm going to come to faith and I'm going to be straight. That wasn't my expectation. But just as part of the journey I was on, I, the best way I describe it is a little bit like puberty, just like noticing uh, curves and things like that that I didn't notice previously. I still experienced attraction towards guys, but I started to experience attraction towards girls. And um, long story short, 
some of you have come to the morning service, met Jen, my wife, and um, we got married. She knew everything, and we talked about everything, and the community loved us and supported us so well. I'm a journey towards marriage, and uh, we're married in every sense of the word. It's not a kind of fake marriage. And <laughs> we've got three kids. Um, <laughs> that's enough of that. Um, but essentially, this has been my story, rattling with this question of sexuality. And I, I, I'm not, in a sense, my, my goal, and we would never claim that the goal for someone coming to faith from a same-sex attracted background is heterosexuality. Uh, we can never promise change in attractions. Actually, really, what our, my conviction is that we would call them to life. And we would say, if you come to Christ, you will experience a love that is better than life. And that that invitation, that invitation is worth dying for worth giving everything for, whether you're straight or gay or whatever your sexual identity, and that Christ is good news for everyone. And really what I want to do is call us as a church to approach this whole subject with faith, to say we believe in a God who is seeking and saving the lost. We see a culture that is full of confusion and destruction in this whole area of sexuality, and there's two things we can do. We can either run away and kind of just hope that we can kind of keep ourselves pure, or we can actually say we have a vision of life that is leads to life and flourishing, and to take seriously our calling to call to the world and say, come and meet the one who knows you better than you know yourself, who loves you, who is willing to die for you, and who has a vision of life that leads to life that leads to flourishing. And that, that we must regain confidence to take up that responsibility, to call to the world and to approach the subject with faith. That's what I want to do. So I want to give you really un- unpack three ideas for you. I want to show you the power of sex, the significance of sex. I want to show you the, the fact that this really just points to a relation, the union with Christ. And then I want to show you why we, can, we don't have to worship sex. So first of all, sex is powerful and a good gift that needs to be protected. Christians may be typecast as anti-sex. Actually, it's the opposite. Right from the beginning, we see that sex is written into our biology by God, and it's a powerful and good gift designed to unite a married couple for life. See this Genesis 2 um, passage I read to you? You, I almost want you just to capture something of the the pathos, something of the, the, the kind of scene here. We have Adam looking at Eve declaring, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's a moment of Edenic desire and delight. He is delighting in her in that moment. But they are naked and unashamed, untainted by lies about body image or insecurities. And instead, there is just a sense of mutual delight, a sense of love and union in that moment that is captured by this Edenic scene in Genesis 2. And it is this picture that then becomes normative as we read on through the rest of Scripture. It says, actually, this vision is entire. There's nothing shameful about this vision of sex from a Christian perspective. Actually, quite the opposite. It's a good and powerful gift. You see it in this picture that sex is written into our design. In verse 18, it said, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, the word helper and fit for him don't quite do justice to what it's saying. The word helper there is not a diminutive word. Helper kind of sounds like you're an assistant. You're kind of unnecessary and you kind of help him in a kind of, if he needs help kind of way. Actually, the word helper there is ezer, and it's a, it's a word that is used to describe God himself. In other words, it's sometimes in the context of rescuer. She is his strong, essential companion for life. It speaks of being fit for him or suitable for him. Well, really, another way of translating it is that she is opposite to him. It speaks of the otherness 
of her. Essentially, what we're saying here is right from the beginning, we see in Genesis that God has designed two genders, male and female, and he has made them, intended for them to be a complementary partnership, a complementary partnership of otherness, that they are different, they are physically different, and that physical, and that, and that difference is then combined together in a one flesh union, united together for their whole lives. And the, what sex is, what that one flesh union is, is it's the physical enactment of the reality that their lives have been joined together. That idea of one flesh, it speaks of oneness of purpose and you combine your finances and your priorities and your time and your whole vision of life. You're not two distinct individuals going about your life for your, for your kind of own purposes and plans. Instead, as you marry together, you combine your lives together. Say, so take my debts, take my, my wealth, whatever it is, and we are now one unit. And as we, that, and, and, and sex, the sexual union is just the physical enactment of that covenantal combination, so to speak. It is the picture, it is a physical picture of the reality that you have given yourself to that person entirely. And it says sex has that uniting power. That's why in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages a a husband and wife not to give up the habit of sex together. Because he says, no, you need to be reinforcing and reenacting your covenant commitment to each other. So you need to, your sexual union together, it reflects the fact that you have come together and you are a team, a partnership. And this is this, is this partnership, it is God, God, God's plan for shaping and changing the world through this partnership. Earlier on in Genesis 1, he gives them the instruction to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. It says, Actually, the way you will change the world is to be fruitful and multiply. That this union together, it's not the only purpose, but, but the marvelous reality we're saying at the center of the sex is that actually this is, this is my way for changing the world, to be fruitful and multiply. Procreation, having children. Sounds kind of mundane, but just think for a moment how this elevates sex. What we're trying to say here is sex is not two people getting forgive me, getting naked and bringing hormonal and physical pleasure to each other, it's a marvelous statement of oneness, an enactment of a, of, a, of, a, of a commitment to the other for life. And through that one flesh union, the marvelous reality that God brings life into the world. By the way, this says this is why one of the reasons why same-sex Relationships are not the same. Why we're saying it's not, it's a category error. It's to, to, to assume that that's sex, in one sense, from a biblical perspective, because it doesn't bring life into the world like that, or doesn't have the potential for life. There's more we could say on that. But right, what I want you to see, both in the, in the beauty of this moment, this Genesis 2 moment, as they are naked and unashamed, and in the actual kind of instructions of this moment, is the high view of sex that this brings. It says sex belongs only in a permanent union. You're only able to give your body away to the other because you've already made a lifelong commitment to the other. You are able to do that under the, under the kind of security of a lifelong commitment of marriage. By the way, it changes how you, how you think of sex. 
No longer it's kind of from a performance, not performing, not trying to prove yourself to a, a temporary or, or transitory lover, but instead it's a manifestation of the acceptance and love of a marriage covenant. You're reenacting the commitment to one another, and it's liberating. There's a security that comes with that. It's no longer pursuing sex from a selfish perspective, saying, I will do what brings pleasure to me, but rather it reflects the marriage covenant that is all about giving yourself to the other. Ephesians 5, Jesus, uh, Paul's instructions, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her. That is the, that is the vision of marriage, two people being willing to sacrifice their lives for the other, to lay down their lives. And so too, their approach to sex will be reflected in that, that they are seeking to bring, uh, forgive me, it's kind of a bit crude, but to, to bless and to bring pleasure to the other. And what this says is it's anything but cheap. It says sex is the most profound way of expressing your love to another and has a uniting power that reinforces your commitment. That's why Paul says, don't unite yourself with a prostitute. Do not just go and sleep with anybody because as you sleep with them, you are uniting yourself, you're fusing yourself with them in some way. That is the reality of what sex is, whether you kind of believe it or not. It's as if you run against that reality pain will come whether you, whether you kind of believe it or not. And don't we see that in our culture? As culture has cheapened sex and taken this profound gift that belongs in a lifelong marriage commitment and instead kind of given themselves away in all sorts of ways, hurt feelings, broken hearts, I think horrendous uh, body image pain and body dysmorphia and uh, things like revenge porn and given away not just your bodies but sexual imagery traded and bodies degraded and a whole heap of shame and again you probably just have to go back to Andrew's Salt Live talk from a few weeks ago to really unpack it I won't spend too long there but I think we all know that when our culture has cheapened sex when our culture has said take this gift like taking the fire out of the fireplace and suddenly it's not protected instead it runs through the house and has brought destruction in its wake we know that when we live outside of this vision, we bring, does not bring life. And by the way, brothers and sisters, for those of you who are married or planning to be married, you've got to hear this as an encouragement to reinforce your partnership in this way, to pursue intimacy. There's a reason why uh, in Proverbs chapter 5, instructed, husbands are instructed. I feel almost awkward bringing, saying this in church, but... It says, let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Say, instructing the, the husband to pursue his spouse. Now, the reality is that sex after marriage may not always feel like Eden, may not always look like this beautiful, Edenic picture. And the irony is, as Christians struggle before not being married, saying, I can't help but kind of I really want to go and have sex when people get married then all other things get in the way children time all sorts of things that make their sexual life sometimes not flourish and actually here as we see the vision of sexual sexuality again if we are married we need to hear this as a call to take seriously this command to reenact and re reinforce our partnership not to neglect this gift but to actually take the time, and it takes time and sacrifice and intentionality and pursuing of the other to have a healthy marriage in this regard. Ultimately, it's back to what kind of marriages do we want to show the world? 
want to show the world that to follow Christ brings flourishing. And so it means taking seriously the call towards sexual union in marriage. So we say sex is powerful. It's a good gift. And that's why we protect it within marriage. And yet, sex is a symbol. It's good, but it's ultimately pointing to something better. As much as we delight and give thanks for the gift of sexuality, we cannot miss its even greater significance. Sex exists as a symbol to tell us about God. See, what you might not realize is as you go through the scriptures, you will see that there is this strong narrative of the picture of marital or even, even this kind of sexual love as a vision, as a picture that gives us an, a, just a metaphor for ultimately our relationship with God. You see this in Ephesians 5, where Paul instructs husbands and wives uh, to live sacrificial and submissive lives. But then he says, he restates it, this vision of marriage, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Saying this Genesis 2 vision actually was all about telling a story of Christ and his church. And as the husband lays down his life for his wife and pursues her, he is meant to be a picture of Christ. As a wife submits to her husband and walks with him in this union, she is a picture of the church. And their marriage is in some way intended to tell the gospel story of Christ coming and pursuing his church and laying down his life for her. That is the picture that Paul's giving us in Ephesians 5. And you go through and look at the Old Testament and you see all sorts of different passages that point and give us this picture of a kind of marriage love. And and God is, is described as the bridegroom, the lover pursuing his beloved. You, you see this in a few different places. I mean, one place you see is Ezekiel chapter 16. It's an incredible passage where, where basically God is describing his relationship with Israel. And he says, I pursued you like a husband pursues his bride. He says, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. Then I bathed you with water. Yeah, it goes on. I mean, it gets pretty, pretty graphic. It says, I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I realize that doesn't sound that romantic to you, but he's saying, I beautified you. I pursued you. I loved you, and I made you mine. You see this in quite a few different places. Hosea chapter 2. God is speaking of Israel as one who has pursued other lovers. He said, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and her jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. He's saying, Israel was intended for me, but she went after other lovers. And then he says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will allure her. I will draw her back to myself. That is the language of love. That is the language of romance. That's even almost the language of sexuality. Or the Song of Songs. The, book, the whole book of the Song of Songs, if you've never read it, it's a, it, it, for almost most of church history, Christians have been convinced that the book of Song of Songs is not just a romantic tale 
of King Solomon and his bride, but is a picture, an allegory of the relationship between God and his people. And it will kind of blow your socks off when you read it and think through that lens. As you see this picture of a beloved pursuing his lover and delighting in her, and she delights in him. And that is a picture, brothers and sisters, of our relationship with God. And it just sounds foreign, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit weird. It's not saying God is sexual, like sexually desirable. It's not that. But it's saying this, this, this love exists. This romantic love exists in the world to show us a picture of God's desire and character, for his, his desire for his people and his character. John Piper, a preacher in the US, said the ultimate reason why we are sexual is to make God more deeply knowable. Says you're in some way the reason why we experience these desires and this reality of gift of, of marriage and sexual love is to point us to what it means to be in relationship with God. Or the writer Ed Shaw in the UK, a celibate guy, single celibate guy, he's gonna be he's got same-sex attraction, not expecting to be married. This is what he said: God has not made you a sexual being to torture you slowly as you struggle to express your sexuality in the right way but rather you have a sexuality so he can best communicate to you the full intensity of his love for you. You have a sexuality so that he can best communicate to you the full intensity of his love to you. So that actually, as you experience desire, which we all do, that's actually a pointer, that's a, picture, that's a reminder almost, the reality of God's posture towards his people. What does this tell us about God? What is, there there? what is this picture there for? Well, first of all, it says God is jealous. Think about romantic or sexual love. The definition of it is jealousy. If you love someone, you're jealous for their affections. You say, you are mine. I don't want you going after other lovers. And so too, when we think of the living God, he is jealous for his people. He's jealous for his own name, for his own glory. He's jealous that his people would worship him alone, that they wouldn't go and pursue and worship other gods. Exodus 34, he says, I, his name is jealous. He says, I, I am the one who's meant to be the, the, the object of your worship. But it's also speaking of a kind of, forgive me, slightly a raging desire for his people. He says, you are mine, you are mine, the living God says. He says, I, I want you. I want your heart. I, I desire you as a husband would desire his bride. It sounds almost sacrilegious. And yet it speaks of the profound love of God. Think about Song of Songs. The end of uh, the song. It speaks of, um, if I can find it. It speaks of a love that is intense and here we are. This is the, this is the words of the, of, the, of the bride for her husband. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of God. It says God is like a jealous flame, full of love full of desire for his people saying, you are mine. A burning fire of love. That is the heart of God. Or in Song of Songs chapter six, you hear the, the, wife, the, the husband and the bride saying, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. 
So too, it speaks of the idea that as we come to know the living God, he says, you are mine, and we say, he is ours. It speaks of that kind of sense of being united with the living God. It speaks of the fact that we enjoy God. When you read the Song of Songs, the, the beloved, you don't just kind of transactionally say, I love you, wife, and she kind of says, I, thank you, I receive your love. It's not a kind of intellectual apprehension. There's a sense of you enjoy the love of your spouse. You celebrate it, you meditate on it. You, there's a kind of drinking in of that love. And I think that's true also in our relationship with God, that we enjoy his love, that God is to be enjoyed Actually, it also speaks of the horrors of sin. It speaks of that sin is, is actually like adultery. If you've ever had someone commit adultery against you, or maybe you've known someone who has, you know how horrendous it feels to have the person you love betray you. And God says that is a picture of what sin is. This is how he speaks to Israel. He says, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them you played the whore. The like has never been nor shall ever be. You took beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver which I had given you and made for yourself images of men and with them played the whore. He's describing their false worship and he's saying you were like an adulterous spouse who deserted her husband. So hear the gravity. If God loves you with this jealous love, see what it is to depart from him and ignore his wishes and commands. So that is like spiritual adultery. And the final thing this says is the sexual union, as good as it is, is only ever appointed to something greater. That Sex speaks, ultimately, of our union with Christ, of what awaits us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, you may not be familiar with this, but it speaks about the idea that when Christ returns, his people will be united with him like a bride is united with her husband. It speaks... It says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb. Jesus has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, this loudly and clearly says that marriage And sex is not your salvation. Marriage is not your salvation. The ultimate marriage, even if you you have a great marriage in this life, it's only ever a pointer to the ultimate marriage to come with the the marriage supper of the Lamb. It says that these things in this life are, are at their kind of just pictures that speak of the union that awaits us with Christ. There's no marriage in heaven. No human, no, we'll not be given in marriage to each other in heaven. Instead, the ultimate marriage is with Christ. That sex, even at its best, is just a pointer to the even greater union. Uh, Christian philosopher and writer Peter Kreeft put it like this Sex gives us subjectively a foretaste of heaven and of the self forgetting, self transcending, self giving that is what our deepest hearts are designed for. 
long for and will not be satisfied until they have because we are made in God's image and this self-giving constitutes the inner life of the Trinity. Saying, in one sense, you only enjoy sex because it is just a picture of the great sense of being given and being accepted and being known and fully loved by the living God. Being caught up in the self-giving love of God. And that means we can live without sex today. Which is our final point. We do not need to worship sex. In a culture that worships sex, that says sex is essential to your flourishing, or marriage is essential to your flourishing, or relationships are essential, we have a special opportunity, particularly those who are single, to declare with our lives that Christ is better than sexual pleasure and even more satisfying than any human relationship that we might have on this earth. You heard in Matthew 19 this calling to be eunuchs for the kingdom, those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What is it saying there? Well, I think what he's talking about is those who will renounce sexual relationships for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And I think this is describing at least two categories of people. Those who will permanently renounce that, maybe experience same-sex attraction, and say, I'm going to be single and celibate for the rest of my life, and I expect to do that ad infinitum, so to speak. Or perhaps those who've said, I am called towards singleness because I'm, I'm going to lay my life down for the gospel, and I want to, being married is going to get in the way of that. I'm going to go to a foreign country, or I'm just going to, I'm going to be single for the mission of God. Those two categories exist. That's permanent eunuchs. I think actually, in a sense, this describes the calling of all those who are single who might expect or hope to be married. That whilst they are not married, they are to live as eunuchs for the kingdom. Not saying that you shouldn't desire marriage. Marriage is a good thing. We already said that. Go back. Um, But we're saying for those who are single, that they should live now in their current state as eunuchs for the kingdom. It means it reframes celibacy Not as I'm celibate because no one wants to be with me, but I'm celibate because I have a higher kingdom loyalty. A higher kingdom loyalty, a love that is better than any promise of sexual pleasure in this life. And before that reason, I will stay faithful to the ultimate lover of my soul. And therefore, I can walk in single celibacy for his glory. Now, this is the hardest culture clash. This is the point of hardest clash with our culture. That says, how does singleness and celibacy make sense? Maybe some of you are feeling that. Or you're hearing the call to follow Christ. You think, okay, you know, maybe to follow Christ may involve that for you. How is that livable? Well, what, a few things we've got to re-understand here. We, we often misunderstand the call to singleness and celibacy. First thing is, it's not a denial of intimacy. We all need intimacy. We don't need sexual expression, but we all need intimate relationships. And I'm not talking about sexual relationships. I'm saying people who know us and, who, and we know them and they speak into our lives and, and we are loved and, and there's deep relationship there. That feeling of being known. That so often we think of singleness as a, 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 a kind of loneliness. And I think we miss that God intends us to experience deep, intimate, healthy, safe, non-sexual relationships. Usually with the same sex. I, you know, caveats with everything. I don't know, don't worry. I can get down a rabbit hole. But you know what I mean. Safe, healthy friendships that where we are known and loved, that we all need those. But it's also not a denial of family. What I mean by that is, you see the picture in Mark chapter 10, where the disciples say, we've given up so much to follow you. 
But Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sister or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mother and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come and in the age to come eternal life. Saying some of you will forego mothers and brothers and sisters. And I'm thinking, you know, talk about the Muslim who comes to faith who might be rejected by their family and their whole community for following him. The gay person who comes to faith and may have to forego the relationship they were in and perhaps even their community because their community are offended by the fact they've become a follower of Christ. Or fill in the blank, other reasons why you might leave them. And then he says, no, actually they will forego that, but they will find a new family, new brothers and sisters. And that's us, the church. That we, we are meant to be that kind of family together such that someone could say, you know what, I've like I did, I, I've forsaken this prospect of being in a romantic relationship, and yet I found a family here, and I found a love, and I found a love in those friendships and those relationships that supersedes what I had in the world. And because the love of Christ is in us, because we actually, if we want, genu- because we pursue genuine, deep relationships with each other, not just I met them over coffee and had a little chat, and then we never saw each other until next week, not that. When we pursue deep relationships outside of church as well as in this building, then we can live out something of that Mark 10 reality. And our ability to call those from, from culture into Christ and to forsake the possibility of being in a relationship will depend on the depth of the relationships that we have here. If we build deep relationships, we'll be able to call them into this. And then thirdly, it's neither is it a denial of impact. You think the idea of being a eunuch, the idea of being single and celibate, say, well, where's my family? Where's my kind of legacy? And interestingly, you see this in Scripture where he's speaking about, I think, about the new creation, about... Uh, the kingdom, sorry, now, says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. Saying, let not the eunuch say, behold, I have no, no legacy, no inheritance. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Saying, you may have kind of, the, not the biological inheritance, But you have an everlasting name. You have a place in the kingdom for life, for eternity. And what's more, as we look into the New Testament, you see that those who are single actually have a freedom to pursue the purposes of God that a married person doesn't. That they have have ability to be, the word Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 7, as undivided, undivided devotion to the Lord. And actually as they do that, they may well have spiritual sons and daughters. I once went to a wedding with a man who was married in his late 30s. So he spent a good nearly 15, 20 years of his life um, as a single man. And that wedding was full of young men who he'd invested in and who had mentored and discipled. And he'd used, he'd used his singleness so well. I just can't wait. You know, I've just got a picture of heaven, of what his life will look like, of the, the number of lives he's impacted and the people he's invested in. So we use our singleness not to kind of, for our own self-indulgence, but actually for the glory of God, to lay down our lives, because we all live sacrificial lives, whether we're married or single. If you're married, you lay down your life for your spouse, for your children, and of course for your community. If you're single, you have perhaps not the same responsibilities to those, those people, obviously, but actually you still live a life of self-sacrifice, of laying down your life. You have the honor and glory of being about Christ's mission in the same way. And yet, in all of that, we say, yes, there will be times, many times, that single celibacy feels hard. That it will involve a death to certain desires. 
dying to your desire for intimacy and for sexual fulfillment. Actually, what we've got to realize is the call to die is a universal one in the kingdom of God. That all people, in fact, married people and single people will have to die to sexual desires. Married people for their sexual desires for everyone except their spouse. For the single person, they will also die. But actually, the Christian life is full of death. It's full of a willingness to say no to certain desires. It's death on the way in, as you die to your old life and your uh, desire of, of kind of gratifying the, the flesh and say, no, I want to surrender my life to Christ. It's ongoing death as you die to the desire for, to glorify yourself or for popularity or for all sorts of sinful desires that don't honor Christ. That's what Christ's call is to all of us, isn't it? Yeah, perhaps the single person or the Muslim person coming to faith in Christ might experience that more obviously. The, the gay person or the Muslim person, as they recognize that cost. But there's a cost to discipleship for all of us. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There is self-denial in the Christian life for all of us. And yet, as you deny yourself and you die to all sorts of desires, you will find life. We stop at the death, don't we? We go, there's death, death, make sure you die. Yes, there's also life. The reason why we die is so we might have life. The death, so we might have life in Christ. Saying those desires will not lead to life. The best way of putting this is the way Jesus puts it in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds treasure hidden in a field. And he sells all that he has to buy that field where the treasure is. But how does he do it? In joy. The Christian life will involve giving up all sorts of, sometimes even good things, to sacrifice, to lay those things down, so that you might receive that treasure. And that transaction is done in joy because the treasure that you receive in Christ is better than that which you've laid down. That which you've said no to is, is in a sense, nothing compared to what you've received in Christ. And if you don't understand that, then you can't, can't do the Christian life <laughs> because it will always involve self-denial. It will always involve death because you've found something greater. So life as we, as we walk in faithfulness in this area, we get to say loudly and clearly to the culture that life in Christ is better than the, the kind of call of sexual pleasure from our culture. You see, the early church were described as atheists in the Roman culture. Atheists because they didn't worship the pantheon of gods, the Roman gods. The same is true today. As we choose not to worship the cult of sex and relationships that our culture worships, we are atheists. Because we say we will not bow down to the gods that you worship because we found the living God. We will not worship created things. That's what you're doing when you worship sex, I think, in a way. You're saying, I will worship the people and the created things. Instead, I will worship the creator, the one who is worthy of worship, not these insignificant people who will die, who are like grass, growing up one day and dying the next. I will worship the living God. And I will do that because Christ is better. This all hinges upon the conviction that Christ is better than that which you say no to. To say, in Christ, in the love of Christ, 
I have found something better than sexual pleasure and even the love of another person. To say no human being will ever truly satisfy you that your desire for intimacy, your desire for love that is universal to be known completely is found in your relationship with Christ. Remember in Psalm 63, David says, your love is better than life. Your love is better than all those counterfeits. That is the truth that we stand on in this. We have found a love that is better than life, a love in Christ that is worth giving every part of our lives for, of laying down all those other things because we've found something better. And so we have good news to take to the culture. We have good news to take to those who are sexually broken, to say your sexual desires will never satisfy you, that marriage is not your salvation, and to point to something greater. Come and experience the love you were made for. Come and experience his restoration and washing clean. Come and experience him drawing you to himself that he might say, you are mine. There's wonderful verses in um, Colossians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul, uh, Paul gives a whole series of litany of sexual sinners, or sinners, and he says, that is what some of you were, but you were washed. I can't tell you what those words felt like to me and still feel like to me today. You were washed. That is Christ's promise. Come to me, all who are broken, all who are walking in sexual brokenness. Come and receive my restoration and my washing. Oh my gosh, isn't that amazing? Come and experience a new identity. To those who've built their identity around their sexual desires, we say, no, you are much more than your sexual desires. Come and meet the person who knows you better than you know yourself and who gives you a better name than any acronym from the sexual identity soup, who says, your better name is Beloved. That is the name that Christ would give you, Beloved. Not fill in the blank. He says, I have a better name for you. Come and receive an identity. Our world is full of people grasping hold of an identity, whether it's around gender or sexuality, to perhaps make sense of the discomfort that they feel within themselves and to make sense of all sorts of warring desires. And those identities are being fed to people, and they're holding on saying, this is, oh, I found who I am. And it's a false, it's like fool's gold. It, it looks shiny on the outside, but on the inside, it doesn't lead to life. It's not really gold. So too, come to Christ, receive the true identity that you are made for. Come and be mine and receive that name, beloved. So we need to regain our confidence as missionaries in a foreign land. We live in a foreign land of hypersexuality. They might think we're homophobic, but we'll show them that we love them because we live in the revolution of love, to love the world and to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice, to love and serve our neighbors. They might think we're anti-sex, but we show them actually we have the high view of sex because we know its power. They might think we're calling them to the impossible, but we'll tell them that we found a love in Christ that is far better than the love of a person. I invite them to die to sinful desires, just as we've all died, and find joy. Joy and life with Christ. To find a love that is better than life. And so we get to tell the story with our, with our lives. If we're married, we walk in faithfulness with our spouse, pursuing our spouse, living lives of sacrificial love that point to the living God who sent his son to, 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 live a, to give his life on the cross to pursue his 
beloved. And if we're single, we walk in celibacy. And in doing so, we point to a greater love than the society offers. And so we found a love that is better than life. And we walk in faithfulness to him to point to the faithfulness of Christ. This is hard, brothers and sisters. In fact, it's impossible without God's help, without the work of the Holy Spirit, without a genuine living relationship with Christ, without a genuine tangible experience of his love and of intimacy with him. It's impossible. So the only thing we can do is pray. Say, God, we need you. We need you to become the people you've called us to be, to help us walk in faithfulness, to experience that love that is better than life. That is, that is what this calling must do. Is say, it's hard, but in Christ it's possible.